Father, I'm so grateful for being outside, the privilege of being outside to gather to worship. Uh, this is a metaphor for what you want us to do to get the message of the gospel outside the four walls of the church because the true church has no walls. And I pray, Father, for your spirit to empower me that I might speak far more clearly and powerfully than I could in my own strength. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in each and every heart here, for whatever reason they're here, that you might open their eyes to the goodness and the glory of the gospel of grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you all hear me in back? Y'all hear me up down here? Okay. Good to go. Good to go. So we are in the gospel of John. We are in our last I Am message in this eight-part series on the I Ams of Jesus. Today, quite frankly, I'm going to do a mashup between last week's I Am, where Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then I'm going to combine that with John 15, where Jesus says twice, I am the vine. In fact, the first time he says that, he says, I am the true vine. If you were here last week, you know that I did not preach the full message I had planned on preaching uh, simply because I saw in my morning preparation I had way too much material. And also, I shared a little bit about some river walk outreach that a group of us from a few different churches are doing in order to make known Jesus on the riverfront of Detroit. Let me just say another word about that. I was out there yesterday for a little while. Aaron was there. We had some great opportunities to declare the gospel by way of sermon, but also just one-on-one -on -one conversations to people who wouldn't even claim to be Christians, to some people who would consider themselves Christians, but actually did not understand the message of the gospel. I was talking to one young man who's a group of young men. He thought he was a Christian because he was a drummer at his church. His idea of the gospel was, I try hard and God accepts me on that behalf. And so I was able to preach to him the law of God, the bad news, and then get to the good news. We need to get the message of the gospel outside the four walls of the church, right? As I just prayed, this is a bit of a metaphor for that. There are many ways to do evangelism. We can, of course, do everyday relational evangelism. Your neighbor should hear the gospel from you. Your teammates should hear the gospel from you. Your coworker should hear the gospel from you. But I'm afraid that we've run from what the Bible makes most prominent about evangelism, just getting out in the marketplace, just getting out in the public in the way as the, the way Paul did in, Mar, in Acts 17, Mars Hill, in proclaiming the gospel. And I think we, we're reluctant from that because we don't want to be seen as weird, right? But when the apostle Paul got out there, they called him a seed picker, which is a way of saying this dude is a fool for talking about God out in the, in the open marketplace. And yet we know that the gospel is the power of God for everyone who's called. And so I just want to invite you to join us next week. We go from four to seven. You can come out for an hour. You don't have to stand up and preach. You certainly don't even have to engage somebody. You can just be out there handing out water, maybe handing out gospel literature, or just praying. If you would like to participate in this gospel outreach and initiative, please let me know. We'll rally up down there at the riverfront together. Now, last week, to go back to last week, I began my sermon by saying people are pretty cool with tagging the name on, of Jesus on about any cause, right? 
Some of those causes are legit. He cares about some of them. He decidedly would not be for, but people are okay if you say this issue is important and Jesus cares about it. But I reminded us last week that the issue Jesus cares about most, the issue that Jesus was most passionate about and most persistent about was that people come to know him. People come home to him. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I shared by way of statistics last week that even people in America who would say that they're Christians are massively confused about the exclusivity of Christ, that he, in fact, is the only way to God. And then I went into one way that Christianity is not unique among other religions. Do you remember that? I said Christianity is not unique in this claim. Christianity is not the only religion that says it's the only way to God. So when people say, you guys are so narrow-minded, I'll say, well, to be honest with you, other religions are pretty narrow-minded too. So the real issue is what is true. And I actually have more respect for people who adhere to religions who say they're the only way, even if it's a false way, a false religion, than people who want to kind of say, let's just coexist. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Because we really don't believe that. In mathematics, we say two plus two equals four, not whatever you feel like it should answer. And certainly in the area of medicine, we don't say, you know what, even if it's a cold, you want to call it cancer. If it's a cancer, you want to call it, it doesn't really matter as long as your heart's in the right place. We don't say that. We have doctors here. They would never do that. So listen, if in the area of mathematics, there's absolute truth, and in the area of medicine, there's absolute truth then how much more should we understand there is absolute truth in the most important thing a human will ever face? That is, the day they stand before the God who made them in his own image for their glory. And as a Christian, I believe the preservation of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the advance of the church are proofs that Christianity is the truth. And I invite you to dive into that if you're exploring that. God gives us a promise in Jeremiah 29, 13. He says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Then I went last week to ways that Christianity is, is unique, not like other religions and claim to be only truth, but how it is unique from all other religions. Christianity, I shared, is unique from all other religions in that it is the only faith system in which justice is upheld and at the same time, Mercy is extended. You know, God has pure eyes and to look upon evil. Do you know the Bible says the soul that sins, it must die. I was sharing that with a young man yesterday who thought by keeping the law, statutes, and ordinances, he would be right with God. I said, no, Ezekiel says the soul that sins, it shall die, even once. And that's not just physical death, that's spiritual death, separation from God forever. The Bible says the wages of sin is death that what we earn for our sin is death. And so that is a divine dilemma. How can God forgive people without just sweeping sin under the rug because he wouldn't be righteous? God answers that dilemma himself in Jesus Christ. We intuitively know that an elephant can't take a person's place, right? There must be a person for a person. 
And not just any old person for a person because every other person has to stand before God for their own sin, let alone somebody else's sin, right? But Jesus Christ not only is fully human, he was without sin. Therefore, Jesus is qualified to take our place. But he's not just qualified to take our place, he's capable of paying the price because while being fully man, he's also fully God. He has enough money in his wallet to pay the price. As infinite God in human flesh, he is able to satisfy the wrath of infinite God. He's able to satisfy the holiness of infinite God. And so what we believe as Christians, and this hopefully will help you share the gospel, why is it important that you Christians believe he's both God and man? I just told you. On the cross, the Father dropped our charges on his son, Jesus Christ. When he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And because he paid the price, mercy, uh, I should say justice is upheld. God ain't sweeping the sin under the carpet. He put it on his son at the cross. He upholds justice, and he now extends mercy to everyone who says, I have sinned against God, but I want to know him. I want forgiveness. I want a relationship within, with him. Hebrews 4.10 summarizes it when it says, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing or propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. And the proof that the check cleared is that the one who paid the price rose again from the dead. Then I started with, then I went to the second thing, how Christianity is unique from every other religion. Not only does it exclusively uphold just, justice while extending mercy, it second of all offers a person, not a prescription. Man-made religion offers a prescription. It says, do this, don't do that, and, and maybe you can be right with God, right? Man-made religion gives you a system you need to follow meticulously to earn your salvation. But Christianity offers a Savior who earns salvation for you. Man-made religion says, here's a recipe you need to apply. And let's just be honest with each other. All of us shank it big time, right? We transgress the law of God, and we transgress the law of man-made systems. But Christianity isn't a recipe to be applied. It's a redeemer to be trusted. And I don't think we get, because we're maybe used to hearing this message, how radical, how revolutionary family it is to say, listen, you want to be right with God? Don't look to a religion. Look to a redeemer. Don't look to a prescription. Look to a person. And that's why it's actually fun to preach the gospel, because we're just bragging on a person. We're bragging on the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's why I like going down to the river, walking other places. I'm simply boasting in a person who did everything for us in order for us to be right with God. Now, here's the weight of today's message. I didn't get to it last week, but I'm going to get to it this morning. <coughs> Christianity is unique from every other man-made religion because it changes a man, it changes a woman from the inside out. And what, it, what the deal is this. At salvation, there are four seeds 
that are planted in the heart of a believer. Four seeds, four seeds that produce over time inside-out transformation, unlike man-made religion, which is just in the business of behavior modification. Seed one, humility. See, man-made religion, I just said it, offers a prescription, prescribes things that you need to do, a formula, right? Do this, don't do that, and then maybe you can be right with God. And because of that dynamic of following the prescription of, of working for salvation, people are quickly categorized in religions as either good, because they're keeping the prescription better than others, or bad, right? Inevitably, what follows on the heels of categorization is comparison. I'm a better person than you because I am doing all the laws of this religion and you aren't, or I'm doing them better than you are. You're nothing but a chump. Now listen, baby, we got Bible for that. In Luke chapter 18, two men go up into a temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stands thus, so everybody can see him pray. And he says, Father, I thank thee that I'm not like other men are, unjust, adulterers, extortioners, or like this low-life chump over here. And then he, he's, again, he's categorizing and he's comparing. He's playing that game because that's what human religion does, right? He says, I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. Man-made religion breeds categorizing, comparing, pride, contempt, hatefulness, judgmentalism, mean-spirited people. But if you're going to understand the gospel, you've got to understand what you really are a what? Anybody here? Sinners who deserve what? Death, God's judgment. You must own who you really are, not as you compare it to somebody down the street from you, but how you stack up before an all-holy God. In other words, to become a Christian, you have to come to acknowledge that you are you have nothing to boast in yourself, right? You're nothing but a wretch on your own. You must understand that the only thing will ever, that will ever save you is God's grace in Christ. Grace is not just, oh, come on in. No, grace is this. Grace is God's undeserved merit to ill-deserving sinners like us. And that's got to be there at salvation, right? Because the Scripture says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the so Christianity, at its very inception, at the point of salvation, there at least, there's at least a seed of humility there, right? Now, let's be clear. Christians massively mess this up, right? I mean, Christians can be hateful, right? Mean-spirited, right? Shameful. They can shame other people, right? Intolerant, judgmental, all, all of that. Like, can we just be honest? Christians can be like that, right? We've all been like that, right? But let's also be clear on this. 
Christians who are like that are not like that because of the gospel message, but because we have stopped believing the gospel message, right? We're like that not because of the gospel, but because we have forgotten the gospel. And that's why as Christians, we don't move past the gospel. It's not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A through Z. We go deeper into the gospel. We sing about the gospel. When I survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And what I want to say to you is Christianity changes us from the inside out because it plants within the heart of a true believer the seed of humility. We don't go around saying, I'm right and you're wrong. We go around saying, I was wrong and God dropped my wrongness on Jesus that I might be made right with him. And he offers that to you too. Y'all with me? Number two, Christianity plants the seed of hope in the heart of every true believer. Not just humility, but hope. I don't have time to lay out the context again as I did by way of introduction last week, but in John 14, Jesus says those words in John 14, verse 6, not to threaten anybody. We take it that way. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's actually trying to encourage some people. They are troubled about some stuff that they're facing, what's coming their way, and he offers them a word of hope. He says, hey, guys, I know things are going to go crazy, but just look to me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, and you're coming through me. So I'm giving you hope. And listen, this world is going to give you no shortage of reasons not to have hope, right? This reason, this world is going to give you no shortage of reasons to be hopeless, to be troubled, right? And by the way, that's nothing new. It has always been that way. But let me tell you about the thing that if we're rightly thinking, if we're being logical for a city second, the thing that should trouble us most is the fact that all of us one day are going to stand before God. I talked about this on a waterfront. All of us are going to stand before God. That should trouble us the most, to stand in my sin before a holy God. That's the very trouble Jesus primarily came in the world to address. He came that we might be forgiven and brought into a family consisting of all kinds of people from all walks of life who've seen their sin and have trusted the Savior. It's why the Gospel of John was written, John 20 and verse 31. These things have I written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name. That's why he said John 14, 6. Now, when we talk about this hope, though, that God puts in the heart of a believer at salvation. Let me be clear here. We're not talking about a plastic, pretend everything's okay when it ain't. Pollyannish kind of hope that just puts a good face on things and ignores suffering, ignores the reality that life can be hard and sometimes hard to understand and hard to accept. We're, we're not talking about that, okay? Now, we're talking about a Job kind of heart. Job went through a few things, right? Job said, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job said, though my flesh turn to dust, yet from my flesh or in my flesh I shall see my Redeemer, for I know that he lives. So we're not talking about a Pollyannish plastic kind of hope. 
that ignores the gritty realities of life. It's just a hope that moves through that with eyes on the Lord. And we also don't mean this. We don't mean a wishy-washy, uncertain kind of hope. We use the word hope that way sometimes. Somebody says, is this going to happen? And you say, I sure hope so, right? We ain't talking about that kind of hope. We're talking about a confident expectation that God is good on his word. And he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he said, I will never leave you or depart from you if you're in him. And there's so many verses. I just want to, give, I just want to drop some scripture on you. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom, now listen, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's more grace for you as you access it by faith. And then he goes on to say, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And you say, come on, Pastor Mike, hope in the glory of God. You know how much I've suffered? Oh, listen then, listen more. And not only that, we rejoice in our suffering. Now that's too much. You want me to rejoice in my suffering? No, that's not so much his point. What he is talking about is we can rejoice in what suffering ultimately does in a believer. He goes on to say, knowing that suffering, anybody knows know the next word, next word? Suffering does what? It produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character in the Greek, proven character. In other words, wow, I've had a lot of stuff happen to me, and I've failed, and at times I just wanted to walk away. At times I almost, I really did, but, but now I'm going the Lord's direction. In the face of all that I've faced, I must be the real deal. And that's why it goes on to say improving character produces hope. And then the Holy Spirit flies in, if you will. He's already in us. He's a person at salvation that indwells us. But the Holy Spirit then confirms that because it goes on to say in Romans 5, and this hope does not put us to shame. It's not a baseless hope because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Are you with me? How about this? First Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to this, he has born us again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what are the two seeds so far that God plants in the heart of a believer at salvation? First seed is what? Humility. Second seed, hope. Now here's the third seed. Surrender. Surrender. A lot of people want Jesus' saviorship, but they don't want his lordship. They want forgiveness, but they don't want to follow him. Jesus warned about this when he says to a group of people in the Gospels, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Remember that passage? Now, to be clear, Christians struggle, do we not, with submitting to his lordship, don't we? But that's just the point. We struggle to do that. We fight to do it. Sometimes we realize we don't want to do it, and then we come back to our right thinking, and we say, I need to submit to the Lord in this area, in this area, in this area. 
fake Christians, faux Christians say, it doesn't matter whether I follow him or not, I got his forgiveness. They make him into a license to sin, not the lover of their soul that they ought to follow with everything. You see, the more you understand the message of absolutely unearned, unmerited, free grace, the more you understand that that demands a response of nothing less than full, unconditional surrender. Years ago, I came across a quote by Tim Keller, and he was talking about this woman that he was ministering to who came to understand that if she would be right with God, it would not be through her works, but through the free grace of God. And it actually scared her in her heart. Keller says, he asked her this question, what's so scary about unmerited free grace? Here's what she said. She replied something like this. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to how much God could ask of me or put me through. After all, I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I've paid some taxes. I've earned a few things. I got a few privileges coming my way. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there is nothing he cannot ask of me. Does that make sense to you? Thank you, sir. Unconditional grace demands unconditional surrender. And that's what Paul says in Romans 12. He spends 11 chapters talking about, hey, listen, the gospel is this gospel of free grace. And then chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you in view of the mercy of God, that gospel of free grace, that you offer your body what? A living sacrifice. And he goes on to say, which is your reasonable worship? Which is your, that, That's a logical response. He paid it all. He deserves it all. Of course we struggle with this. And of course we need to grow in this. And of course God is constantly calling the true believer to deeper surrender in the Christian life. That's why the Christian life is painful after two years and after 20 years. Because God reveals stuff you need to surrender. There, listen, retirement may be a word we use, but there's no such thing as retirement in spiritual life. There's always another step of surrender to take because God is always working in the heart of a believer. Now, you guys know what sifting is, right? Sifting. Gardeners know that sometimes the, they, they will take a, a screen and, and box it in, frame it in with some two-by-fours, and if they're trying to purify some soil, they'll take a shovel full of that soil, put it on that screen, and then they'll sift it so that the good soil falls through and the plastic and the sticks and the other debris that's not helpful is sifted out. There is a great sifting going on right now. There's a great sifting going on now between genuine Christians and cultural Christians. I really believe that. Many pastors have been talking about this. Many Christians have been talking about this. There's a sifting going on between those who were truly connected to Jesus, submitted to his saviorship and lordship, and those who are only connected to the church. Maybe they like something about the church. 
They like the people. They like something about the church, but they never really surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. And there's a sifting going on. Sunday was all that Christianity was about, and when Sunday went away, they were gone because that's all they had. They never really surrendered. There is a sifting going on. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way. They never really got on the way. And that's the emphasis of John 14, 6, based on the context. Show us the way. He said, I am the way. But he also talks about being the truth. Does not Jesus say that in John 14, 6? The truth will set you free, he said. He said we, we would be sanctified through truth, John 17, 7, 7-ish. He says to the Father, Father, sanctify them with the truth. Thy word is truth. And I'm telling you, as people are being sifted, people are not only imbibing, but in many ways, in many times, promoting godless ideologies that are rooted in the world and not the word. It's happening. And then Jesus goes on to say, I'm the life. I'm not an accessory. I'm not an option. I am to be your life. A true Christian understands God calls us to full surrender to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. And again, 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 a person is going to realize all through your life, whoa, I haven't surrendered there. Oh, I need to surrender that. I mean, God's always working. But there's a growing life of surrender in the heart of every believer. Why? Because at salvation, a seed of surrender was planted. So what's the first seed of surrender? Humility. The second seed, third seed, and with this fourth seed, I close. The seed of transformation. This is kind of the big idea anyway. Remember what I'm saying. Christianity is unique from man-made religion because it changes a person from the inside out. Genuine transformation. Unlike religious behavior modification. Now, you can look really good, right? Like, you can say, wow, they observe feasts and days and all that. Or, man, look at the way, look at the tassels in the case of one cult. Look at the tassels on their shirt, right? Or, look, man, that, that person is never cussed. You know, and you just go on and on. You go on and on. There's, it's, it's behavior modification. That's all it is. But it's like cheap plated jewelry. What happens a few days after you buy a cheap piece of jewelry that's plated and you wear it. It just it turns and it starts to flake, right? And then you put a power, imagine putting a power washer on that. All those flakes will start coming off, right? And life can be like a power washer to us, right? And it's going to reveal whether we've just got religious behavior modification or Jesus-centered from the inside out transformation. That's what John 15 is all about. Jesus shows us that Christianity changes us from the inside out because we're connected to a living vine. Two times he says, I'm the, I'm the true vine. In fact, for the first time he says, I'm sorry, I'm the true vine, meaning you can be connected to some false vines, right? You can be. He says, then I am the vine. And then he says eight times, he talks about abiding in him. Six times on the heels of abiding, he says, abide in me that you might bring forth fruit. And I'm just, I'm just running through this. There's a really cool word, vine dresser. It's not the generic word for farmer. A farmer plants his seed in the spring, goes and does all the other farming stuff, 
and, and comes back in the fall, and hopefully there's a harvest. Not a vine dresser. It's a very technical word in the Greek. A viticologist, if you will. A vine dresser tends to the vines in every season, all the time. Stormy seasons, rainy season, sunny season, winter, fall, spring, all of that. And the Bible tells us that the vine dresser is our father. You have a good father in Christ. He's a good, good father, and he's always tending to your vines. And I know sometimes that's painful, right? But he's always tending. And then Jesus goes on to say in this, in this parable that there's two kinds of pruning that happens. Pruning number one, branches that do not bear fruit. What does he do to them? He cuts them off and he throws them in the fire. I don't think that's too good. Do you? No, 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 my friend. Because what happens here, what happens right here is this. Let, let, yeah, let me, let me come at you for just for a second. It's been a few years. We'll talk afterwards, okay? See, what that passage reminds us is this, that you can do this. You can look like you are connected to Jesus but not really be connected, right? Judas looked like he was connected. I mean, good night. They let him carry the purse, right? They let him carry the, be the treasurer. And there are a lot of people who are tares who look for a minute like wheat, and they will be bundled up and cast into the fire. That, that's, listen, Jesus is talking to us in love with that, right? Then he says there's another kind of pruning, a pruning for ones that are real branches. They really bear fruit, but they've got some dead growth on them. We all have dead growth, right? And Jesus prunes his people. Sometimes it's painful, but just like when you go to an apple tree or something that you need to pre, pre, uh, prune off some dead branches, ultimately that causes more sap to go to the good places, right, and grow. Now, he, he, let, let, let me close this. Here's the point. Christianity transforms us from the inside out because we are connected to a living Savior and sap flows from him to us to bear fruit. Listen, no Muslim ever went around and said, I'm crucified with Muhammad. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Muhammad lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the son of Muhammad. We don't do that, right? No, no Mormon ever said, I'm crucified with Joseph Smith. Nevertheless, not I, but Joseph Smith lives in me, right? But as Christians, Galatians 2.22, that's why Paul says, don't go back to the law when you're saved by grace. He says, listen, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Baby, you're connected to Jesus, and his sap is going to flow through you. And he is God in human flesh, fully God, fully man. And listen, this union with Christ is what theologians call it. It's a mysterious thing, but abiding in him is no mystery. Yes, it says in Ephesians that I am right now seated with Christ in the heavenlies, union with him, and right now, Galatians 2.22, he's inside of me down here. There's this connection, this vital union. And what does it mean to abide? I don't have the time, but there's three words in our text. You trust him. You trust his promises. You talk to him. You pray to him. That's communication. And you obey him. You got to obey him. You got to obey him. You read the word, and you do what he says. And when you mess up, you confess it, and his blood cleanses you. Now, I, I, I'm going I'm to close with this story right here. Last 
Saturday, not yesterday, but the Saturday before, we were talking to uh, um, kind of a cult. Um, they wouldn't call themselves this, but they're called Black Hebrew Israelites. And they sometimes wear a shirt with tassels on it. Based on the Old Testament scripture, tassels would remind the priests to keep the laws, the statutes, and the ordinances. And as I was preaching, one of them broke off and, and, and went to speak to a lady. Dear, sweet Christian lady, I could tell we made eye contact. When you're street preaching, sometimes people are like, they give you that, hey, I'm with you. Keep preaching. And she kind of had done that previously. Well, somebody goes over to seek to make her a convert, and she says, and I shorten this, she says, uh, young man, what's with these tassels? And he says, well, these are to remind me to keep the laws, statutes, and ordinances of God. Here's what she said. You can take your tassels. I'll take the Holy Spirit who lives within me to cause me to walk in the ways of Jesus. And that's the power we have because we are connected to God in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. And he gives you the power then to submit and to obey and to confess. Are you being sifted? Is God getting some debris out of your life? Some sticks, some stones, some plastic, whatever? Are you submitting to him? He put four seeds in you. The seed of humility, the seed of hope, the seed of surrender, and the seed of transformation. Jesus changes his people from the inside out. And Paul gives us this promise, which I've needed many a time when I have screwed up, that we can be confident of this very good thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Aaron, Tom, if you guys would lead us in song, we're going to close with a song. I don't know how God has worked in your heart through this. Maybe one of the seeds, like, I need hope. And I'm just going to turn to God and say, God, would you put some water on the seed of hope you put in my heart? Maybe, maybe like, there's an area where you need to surrender. You need to surrender something. Why don't you do that right now? And as you do that, God will do with you inside out, genuine, non-plated gold transformation for your good, for your joy, and for his glory. Father, please use these words from your word to change us from the inside out that we might look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.